From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, treating submacular hemorrhages with TPA. If you're confronted with patients, especially one eye, who comes into your office having seen 2030 and driving, and then comes in, you know, led by a friend and a hand motion, you have to ask yourself that you need to do something about this. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Sears declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Treatment options for subretinal macular hemorrhages are limited and carry substantial risk. Elsewhere in the body, tissue plasminogen activator, or TPA, has proven effective at lysing clots. Today, we hear from Jonathan Sears, who has just published results of a study investigating the use of TPA in submacular hemorrhage lysis. John, what are the most common etiologies of macular subretinal hemorrhages? Uh, ma- oh, I'd have to be uh, macular degeneration far and away. I would say if you took all other origins of subretinal hemorrhages that are clinically significant and then matched them up against all the hemorrhages that you get from macular degeneration, the ratio would have to be, oh, I'd say maybe almost 5 to 1. Definitely 4 to 1, but mostly 5 to 1. Can you tell me what some of the other etiologies are for macular subretinal hemorrhages? Oh, sure. Well, in, 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 young, in, in young people, naturally submacular hemorrhage is associated with coronal nevascularization. So in uh, children, which I would say a child is anybody under the age of 18 or adolescent, I guess, you'd have to say that there would be things such as PIC, which is uh, punctate intercoriditis, and then uh, multifocal choroiditis, continuing with inflammatory conditions, you know. And then infectious, you'd have to say uh, toxo, toxicoriasis, toxoplasmosis, toxicoriasis, other larval, larval uh, uh, granulomatosis. I actually had a kid that has a, a uh, larvae from Bayless ascaris, which is a raccoon-associated, uh, you know, associated with raccoon feces, you know. And then uh, in terms of just outright idiopathic, there's, you know, there's that, that idiopathic uh, CNV would almost equal the others where you really don't find a cause. But here in Ohio, mostly it's toxoplasmosis or even congenital dystrophies, North Carolina macular dystrophy, taking care of a child like that. So, and then um, I'd, I'd say adults, you know, non-AMD would have to be, uh, you know, POHS, presumed ocular histoplasmosis. Which I'd guess you'd see there quite a bit. Yeah, we sure do, yeah. In fact, uh, AMD and, and histo is very common up here. What is the natural course of submacular hemorrhage? not good. Without a doubt, it leads to vision that's at least less than uh, 2200, and more likely uh, not even equal to 2200. How does macular subretinal hemorrhage 
interfere with vision? What's the mechanism? What's the, the pathophysiology? Yeah, there's yeah, there's acute ones and chronic ones. Really, the acute ones are relatively obvious, which is it just it uh, short circuits the metabolic cooperation between the RPE and the retina, and so that that initially leads to uh, loss of vision, essentially. But more importantly, and this is work really done by uh, I think Lewis was the one who sort of completed the original studies by Mockhamer, in that they looked at the histology of uh, submacular hemorrhages in rabbits and found that the clot interdigitates by way of fibrin with the photoreceptors. And so naturally over a period of days, I would say four days, the clot retracts and it shears the photoreceptors. And so that's why one of the the earliest innovation in clearing of uh, uh, you know, subretinal hemorrhages was to actually go in and liquefy the clot with subretinal TPA. Again, that's work by uh, Halal Lewis. And then evacuate the clot in, in situ, so to speak. You know, make a large retinotomy, um, put in an irrigator aspirator in the subretinal space, and by, you know, chasing the blood, you basically um, cleared the hemorrhage. But often the vigorous fluid fluid currents raised heck with the RPE and with the retina, even in skillful hands. You know. Does the prognosis vary with the size of the hemorrhage? Yeah, absolutely. I have a handful of patients that have had large macular hemorrhages that eventually go on to no light perception. You know, it's pretty striking. I used to tell patients, you know, you have macular degeneration, you don't need to worry, you're going to, you know, lose your central vision, it's a terrible thing, you're not going to be able to see the food on your plate, drive, you know, read, but uh, you're going to be able to interact with your environment, and, you know, know the seasons, know your family well, and, you know, be able to take care of yourself. And actually, some of these patients have gone on to no light perception that have massive hemorrhages. So, now, small localized hemorrhage, the body usually clears, but it, it helps establish a scar centrally. So if you wipe out this diameter centered on the fovea, you're going to be uh, you know, resigned to far less than 2,400 vision. I think you'll have 5 feet 200, but far less than 2,400. What is the conventional therapy for macular subretinal hemorrhages? Well, that's changing uh, d- daily. In the past, you know, when... Uh, I came out of uh, Emory, I'd say, eight years ago, you know, subretinal hemorrhage. At that time, we were, we were trying out, I guess it's Harriet's idea of putting a gas bubble in the vitreous and then forcing the blood to to dislocate, you know, pneumatically, I would say. And you put the patient in a prone position face down, and the bubble pushes against the retina and, put, and moves that clot out of the way. That sort of gave way to the idea that we should be putting TPA into the vitreous in order to liquefy the blood. And then it was, you know, Lewis again that showed that the TPA doesn't enter the subretinal space when injected intravitreally. And so he advocated putting it in the subretinal space. And I'd say perhaps four or five years ago, there was a nice publication by a guy who was a resident when I was a fellow at Emory. And I'm blanking on his name. I can't believe it. Huh, it'll come to me. Anyway, when he was at Duke, he was a fellow who put together their experience using a subretinal injection of TPA, allowing the blood to lyse, and then dislocating the blood via a uh, bubble of air or short-acting gas, which uh, was a really good idea because it gave you the best of all worlds. It, it gave you the sort of easier technique of injecting you know, air, but at the same time, it ensured that the TPA was where it needed to be. So it took, you know, from the best of both worlds, from, you know, Lewis's idea of TPA in the subretinal space with surgery to, um, I guess it's Harriet's idea of injecting a gas bubble and then TPA intravitually. And it works very well. 
It really does. I think if you select patients carefully, in other words, uh, make sure that you use this technique with a hemorrhage that is not too large. In other words, if you have an arcade to arcade hemorrhage, you likely will be able to translocate or dislocate this blood, but it's uh, also as uh, likely that you won't be able to, and you'll be forced to take other measures to remove the blood. But with a smaller hemorrhage, anywhere from one to three disc areas, this is a reliable technique. Were the results with conventional therapy poor because the therapy was not effective? Well, the, well, the only conven- you know, conventional therapy really didn't exist unless you're going to operate. You know, there's, there's no way that even treating the CNV uh, pharmacologically would get rid of the problem of the toxicity of the blood in the subretinal space. The iron overload is toxic to the photoreceptors, the fibrin we discussed. Sorry, let, let me clarify my, my question. Were the results with conventional surgical therapy poor because the therapy is ineffective or because the therapy itself induced complications? It's the surgical approach that was wrong. In other words, and I would say the latter, although these are uh, complications that you really, I don't think, could be prevented by the technique. And the first is that using the subretinal IA, there's natural damage that occurs to the photoreceptors in the RPE. And second, by injecting um, a gas bubble without TPA uh, or TPA in the subretinal space, you effectively trans- uh, you dislocated the uh, clot, but when you did, they were stuck to the photoreceptors. And so they effectively, again, sheared the photoreceptors when the whole idea of moving the clot was to prevent that from happening. So that's why injecting TPA in the subretinal space and then allowing the blood to passively diffuse out of the center of vision using an air bubble to gently massage that blood away once it's liquefied, I think works well. And then, uh, you know, we discuss cases other than AMD. In cases where there's been a large submacular hemorrhage associated with macroaneurysm, for instance, or even a uh, peripapillary CMV, visual acuity approaches 20-20. And that's from a starting vision of at best hand motion. So, uh, so again, you know, if you, if you get lucky and you have pathology that um, exists outside the center of vision, for instance, just today, there was a patient who was a 21-year-old gal with uh, leukemia who had a uh, what appeared to be a, a, a macroaneurysm or, or a um, direct rupture of a, a perifoveal vessel with uh, basically zero platelets. Sort of her admitting symptom was uh, loss of vision for uh, uh, PML, and uh, she uh, it turned out she had a large amount of subretinal blood a very small amount of uh, subhyaluronic sub-ERM blood, and um, also a nerve fiber layer hemorrhage. So it was really, you know, sort of characteristic of a macroaneurysm, though it was a small vessel. And she had perhaps three disc areas of uh, subretinal hemorrhage. And so she received today um, less than 48 mil- uh, micrograms of PPA and then a uh, fluid air exchange. And uh, we'll see how she fares. When was TPA introduced as a therapy? That's a, that's a great question I don't have the answer to. In fact, I'm, I'm interested, you know, the TPA uh, is a plasminogen, the plasminogen activators, tissue plasminogen, uh, plasminogen activator inhibitors are really a, a second class of proteases, the first being uh, metalloproteases. Of course, I don't know which is one and two, but if you think about proteases important for things such as neovascularization, you really have these two classes, the um, the plasminogens, which fall under the idea of uh, serine proteases or serpents, and then uh, metalloproteases. So, uh, you know, the uh, recombinant tissue plasminogen activator has been very useful in uh, lysing clots. I don't know how long it's been around. I really don't. When was the procedure that you used in this study introduced? 
I have to think that the first one was done probably at least 10 years ago. You know, uh, just in judging, uh, Hop- oh, Hopper is the name of the, of the uh, guy that was first author on that publication out of Duke. I know Hopper had a publication, I think Kirk Packow did. And there's a number of important points about comparing these three publications that are worthwhile. I can't get into the specifics of patient data. I think the results are relatively the same, I think. John, can I ask you to describe the design of this study? You know, I knew you were going to ask that. Because I'm because a guy, I always ask that. No, it's just that I'm a guy that uh, really hates these clinical studies, to be honest with you. But um, honestly, what I would be, I'll tell you how it was designed. That is that if you're confronted with a patient, especially one eye, who comes into your office having seen 2030 and driving, and then comes in, you know, led by a friend and a hand motion, you have to ask yourself that you need to do something about this, especially with one eye. And the design of the study is basically what to tell patients who have this problem, what their odds are of getting better, what their odds are of getting worse through this surgery. Now, it was uh, retrospective. It was interventional. And it, I don't believe it was case-controlled. And I don't believe it was randomized, obviously. And it was also retrospective. So these are all flaws with it. But they basically show the outcome of this technique with one surgeon and you know, close to 20 patients who all suffered from uh, macular degeneration. I think the inclusion criteria were sudden loss of vision. I don't think there were any you know, limiting visual acuities to be entered into this. That really depended on my judgment. And the second thing was to have a diagnosis of AMD. And clearly this hemorrhage associated with AMD. Because uh, when it wasn't, you know, those, are, those were operated, but they weren't included in this study. And, you know, having you know, a uh, same vision recording before and afterwards. And again, this is a problem because I guess these aren't uh, ETDRS letters, but just smell and visual acuity. Uh, and the idea was to follow the uh, rate of visual improvement and the number of complications. What were the etiologies of the hemorrhages in these patients? Were they all macular degeneration? Yeah, they were all macular degeneration. John, can I have you walk me through the procedure? Okay. Basically, patients who were operated on generally were uh, within two weeks and hopefully one week of having their uh, hemorrhage. That's the first thing. And we know this is important because prior studies have shown that if you wait longer than two weeks, that chance of success is very poor. And then, you know, after careful, uh, you know, pre-op questioning and medical history exam, they were taken to the operating room. Any time they were on uh, anticoagulants, those anticoagulants were stopped, which meant uh, Coumadin, we waited a full three days for uh, surgery. Uh, aspirin, we didn't. And then patients were taken to the operating room, given a uh, three-port vitrectomy under local monitored care. And the first step of the vitrectomy was to include elevation of the posterior hyoid, which I do with uh, active suction from the vitrectomy instrument and a 45-degree light pick, and that sort of ensures that the hyoid is detached. Then exchanging the flat lens for a wide-angle lens, a complete vitrectomy is done. And an injection of subretinal TPA is initiated by using a subretinal spatula to make a very small hole adjacent to the hemorrhage. And there's a couple of important points here. One is you have to elevate the posterior hyaline and do a complete vitrectomy. The second is that the smallest hole must be made in the retina. This is a 32-gauge instrument that injects the TPA, and, and you don't want the orifice of the retinotomy to be larger than that because TPA will back out the hole. This hole has to be essentially self-sealing almost. And and I like to inject directly into the clot for a number of reasons. One is I like to make sure the TPA penetrates the clot. Second, I don't want to inject between the retina and the clot. So using a translocation cannula is not a good idea. And using a 
you know, a 32 gauge cannula extent is probably a good idea, though people have reported success with the other. You know, Kirk Paco, I think, uses a translocation cannula, and he's, you know, fine surgeon, so. But by uh, making sure that the photoreceptors don't contact the TPA until the blood is liquefied, you prevent, again, that idea of, of uh, shearing the photoreceptors. And then no more than uh, 50 micrograms of TPA is injected. And the reason that that concentration is important is that there's an arginine vehicle which is used to prepare the TPA, and that is toxic at a higher dose than what I just mentioned. So we uh, have a, a pharmacy prepare a sterile and balanced salt solution, TPA at a concentration of 12 micrograms per mil. And then I don't inject usually any more than 0.3 mils. If I think I have to inject more than 300 microliters, I'll dilute that further to make sure that the total dose is no greater than uh, between 30 and 40 micrograms. And then we allow the patient to uh, have access to that TPA for about an hour, which means oh, the final 15 or 20 minutes of the surgery, uh, placement in PACU, and then they get sat up directly upright at almost 90 degrees, the head slightly tipped forward, you know, wearing a Philadelphia collar, which is a protective neck brace. And, you know, prior to that, obviously, there's been a fluid air exchange that I do to the dome of the, of the macular uh, detachment. So uh, I think the important points being a small retinotomy, injecting into the belly of the clot, and using a certain concentration of TPA that's not toxic. What were your results from this study? Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not earth-shaking, but they showed some, you know, decency to them. Again, it's, it's an imperfect world and certainly an imperfect disease and, and what might be considered intervention at a very late point in time. But I'd say almost 8 out of 10 patients within the study had improvement of visual acuity or at least stabilization of what they had, which is okay when you realize that sometimes these eyes get worse over time. About half the patients had total clearing of the hemorrhage. You know, perhaps, you know, 8 or 9 others. There's eight, eight, I believe there's uh, 17 or 18 patients in the study, and just about half had total clearing of the hemorrhage whereas some of them had subtotal clearing. And that, that generally wasn't blood that we had to go back in and, and repair. The recurrence is an interesting thing, and I think this is another interesting point that can be made from this, and that is that when you do a focal laser, 50% of these lesions recur. When you do submacular surgery, you know, for whatever lesion type, at least a third recur. And for some reason, which is very strange, in uh, some of these lesions, when you put TPA in fluid, in the subretinal space and, and dislocate the blood, the angiogram following the surgery shows a quiescent membrane. In other words, there's no leakage, there's only staining, and it doesn't look like this thing's active anymore. So it's almost as if the bleeding is its final death now, and even perhaps something about the TPA helps to keep these membranes from uh, recurring, because I would say that in terms of re-bleeding, we had perhaps two or three patients that re-bled of the uh, you know, entire study group. What would you then say that the risk of a re-bleed is? I'd say I would put it at about 10%. Were there any untoward events observed? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime anybody has a contractile surgery, they're going to develop a cataract. That's first. Second, uh, we had one patient that had a retinal detachment. That's a very real complication of uh, contractile surgery. I like to pride myself and think that as someone that repairs retinal detachments, if there was a warning sign of one, I would recognize it being there but we had one retinal detachment, certainly. And the most important thing, I think, in informing patients is that uh, there may be subtotal clearing of the hemorrhage. And second, it depends where their lesion is. If it's an extrafoveal lesion, there's very good hope. If there's, you know, a scar in the center of vision, there's not so much good hope. Which brings up another point. I think this is a surgery that should be reserved for people that have good vision prior to the hemorrhage.
you know, if you know that the vision is no better than 2200 going in, then I don't think I would attempt the surgery. If a patient has vision better than 2200 with a submacular hemorrhage, I wouldn't attempt the surgery. 2200 or worse, then I would say they're a candidate, but 2080, not. 2100, I don't believe they should be a candidate for the surgery, and uh, even 2100 minus. That's probably at odds with, you know, the person that taught me the surgery, Dr. Lewis, who really believes that in a, in a uh, one-eyed patient that has a semacular hemorrhage, even 2060 vision, that uh, using this technique uh, promises better long-term stability than uh, doing nothing. I don't know how that's going to change now with drugs such as Navastin that are available and Lucentis, but that'll be interesting to uh, find out. How toxic is the TPA preparation? Well, that's the point. If it's in better than uh, 50 micrograms per mil concentration, it becomes toxic. And I, I believe that's because of the arginine that's present. I don't know if the arginine acts like an excitotoxin, such as glutamate or not, but I think they're both... Uh, I'm not sure if arginine is a basic amino acid or not. But uh, at any rate, there's a, it is toxic at that concentration. Did your results correlate with a lesion type? No, and that was a real bummer. That was a real bummer, because I thought for sure, you know, because I was very interested in the effect of uh, TPA on these coronal vascular membranes, and I thought, you know what, it's going to be the occult lesions that are going to have better vision, because they bleed and, you know, maybe involute. And, you know, this one thing this is going to say is that, uh, again, with this whole, you know, mania, if you read the New England Journal of Medicine, I think it was last month, with this mania that uh, clinical trials have with uh, discussion of subtype. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. A very, very interesting article in which it says that the more subtypes you make in a clinical trial, the greater the probability that one of the subtypes, uh, subtypes is going to be clinically significant. It's really pretty funny, which, you know, harkens back to this whole PDT thing. But I was hopeful that the uh, occult membranes would have a better prognosis with this surgery, and they didn't. There was really no, you know, predilection for one membrane being better than the other. Are there patients who you would think would be especially well-suited to this procedure? Yeah, I think uh, vision better than um, 2200 probably should not undergo this procedure unless they're a one-eyed patient and very, very committed and understanding of the fact that, you know, they have a, a 50% chance of maintaining that 2200 vision without intervention, you know. Or I should say, I should correct that, that they have a 50% chance of um, stabilizing their vision at the 2200 level with surgery. So, you know, that's an important piece of information. They would stabilize the vision and not improve it. But good visual acuity prior to the hemorrhage, vision worse than 2200, and a medical uh, history that's consistent with being able to undergo vitrectomy surgery. John, what do you do in your own practice when these patients come in? How do I deal with them? Yeah. I first tell them exactly those facts, that if their vision... Uh, you know, in fact, uh, I'll give you a typical scenario. Someone has a, or perhaps a one-disc hemorrhage and comes in with visual acuity of 2080. Perhaps the hemorrhage is not centered on the uh, fovea. Perhaps it's not a pigment epithelial detachment beneath the fovea. And um, I'll say, you know, your vision is 2080. At this point, we have to watch you very closely to make sure that your vision doesn't get worse than 2200. At that point, you know, we're going to have to make a decision to operate. If, after one week of this, your acuity hasn't changed, then you're left with a decision of whether or not to go ahead and operate at vision, you know, which is very good, which I would not recommend, you know, uh, versus watching and seeing what happens with that clot. Because I think the worst case scenario is where the, the vision takes a long time to get that and the clot sits there for a long time. 
So a vision of, uh, you know, better than 2200, then we would observe that for a week, have this discussion, and then follow closely after that. So that, I think if the first exam showed a uh, vision of 2080, I would follow up with the patient within three to five days to make sure they weren't getting worse. Yeah, at that point, you could offer them, uh, you know, pharmacologic intervention, which would include either Avastin, uh, despite the uh, cost to the individual, because most uh, medical carriers don't cover that. Uh, versus uh, macugen, which I think is not as effective as nevastin. And uh, if uh, fluorescent angiogram showed the ability to have PDT with uh, steroid injection, that would be another option. Uh, but, uh, you know, essentially I think at this point most people would agree that the nevastin injection would be the, uh, would probably hold the clearest advantage. Although that, that's not been proven. John Sears, thank you very much. I appreciate you thinking of me. Jonathan Sears is Associate Staff at the Division of Cell Biology and Ophthalmology at the Cole Eye Institute of the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. His paper, Management of Subretinal Macular Hemorrhage by Direct Administration of Tissue Plasminogen Activator, appears in the April 2006 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Sears or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275, or Skype, J. Young, MD. Those numbers can be found on our website, asseenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the new media project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.